All right. So we are continuing in this series that we've started that's going to take us through the entire school year called The Plan. And the idea behind this series is that we're going to tell the, we're going to go through the story of the whole Bible and look at how it is one single story. Not just look at a bunch of the episodes in the Bible, but the focus is going to be on identifying the one story that connects all of the stories throughout the Bible. Because it's really easy to know Jonah and the whale, David and Goliath, um, Moses and the burning bush, but it's harder to know how they all connect together and how they are one story following one plot. And so last week we looked at Genesis 1, and we looked at the fact that uh, you know, plot involves a character that is doing a thing. And we put together, we looked at Genesis 1 and saw how that establishes who the person is that's doing something in the Bible and what the thing is that he's doing. We talked about the fact that God is the main character and that in Genesis 1 we see him set out a program, a plan, that he works to accomplish throughout the entire rest of the Bible. And so just to remind you, I think we might end up doing this each week, we're going to start by remembering what the storyline of the Bible is. Okay? The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in His presence. Four Ps. So make it easy to remember. Place, people, purpose, presence. We talked about in Genesis 1, God makes this incredible place, and He puts people in it, but those people have a very specific purpose. They're supposed to rule that place on His behalf. They're supposed to, to uh rule over it and to, to lead creation in responding to God. And then on the seventh day, the most important thing happens, which is that God comes to rest in His creation because the goal is for God to live with His creation. So that is the storyline of the Bible is God working to accomplish that plan. Today we're going to look at the first story that actually has some kind of conflict. We're going to be in Genesis 2 and 3. But before we go into that, I want to show you, a, we're going to try this approach of reading a Bible, read a Bible story in the context of the plan. You'll notice on your outline that you have this grid. You have this kind of plus sign of coordinates. And here's, here's how I want you to use that. Basically, whenever you're reading a story, if you want to fit it into the plan, you just have to identify these four things. You draw this, and in one corner you put people. And that's who is the story about? What human beings are the main characters of the story? Then the next question is, what is their home? Now, that's different from where are they, because one of the big themes in the Bible is when people are not in the place that God made them for. We call that exile. So the question is, what is their home? Where are they supposed to be? Then the next question is about presence. How can they meet with God? And finally, what did God tell them to do? And the idea is, once you've identified these four elements of the story that the, the, most Bible stories will establish at the beginning, or in the first half of it, then, as you read the rest of the story, these coordinates will help you keep track of um, what is the tension in the story. What am I supposed to be paying attention to? And you'll actually, it will bring out a lot of what's going on. So in order to teach you this, we're going to apply it to Genesis 2 and 3. And I'm actually not going to put the scripture on the page, on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. And what I want you to do is listen and see how much of that you can fill in as I read chapter 2 of Genesis. That's not chapter 2. That's This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put a man, the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must, must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for, out of, for she was taken out of man. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Uh, that's Genesis 2, and from that, you should be able to fill out the four parts of this grid. So, first question is, who, people, who is the story about? Very good, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve um, are separately created, but they're created for the same purpose. And this is something, there are a couple of words that need to be better translated for us to understand what's going on. First, helper. The word for helper here is actually the only other, because it says Eve is made to be a helper, but the only other place that the word helper is used in the, in the Bible is used to refer to God as the helper of humanity. So it's, it's not like an assistant, like it's not that she did the typing. It's like someone who is essential to doing the job without whom the job cannot be done. Uh, and so, and it could actually, in, when it's applied to God, it could be translated as savior. So she's definitely not his secretary. She is essential to the job. Also, the other word, oddly enough, is mistranslated as rib. It doesn't say rib. It says side. Like, his side was cut open. You could almost envision it as he's, like, cut in half. Um, it is, so this one calling is put into two people, Adam and Eve. The second question is, what's the place? Where is their home? Garden of Eden. That's easy. Probably didn't need me to read the story to know that. Now, here's the tricky one. Where can they meet with God? Now, this is one that if you aren't from the culture that the Bible was written in, you wouldn't necessarily pick it up from Genesis 2. So you actually would pick it up from Genesis 3. But if you are from the culture that's written in, you would recognize the type of language that's being used to describe the garden. Is, if you remember, we talked last week about how the whole earth is made for the presence of God. It's to be his temple. And the language that's being used for the Garden of Eden makes it sound a lot like the Holy of Holies in the temple. And it's being described as a place for God to live. Now, where we really find this out is in Genesis 3, where we're going to hear that God was walking in the garden. We also see this in the prophets, where the prophets will talk about the fact that they call the Garden of Eden the Garden of God. It's not the Garden of Adam and Eve. It's the Garden of God. Because the Garden was not made for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were made for the Garden, and the Garden was made for God. So, what we find is that the, the place where they can meet with God is in the Garden. Okay? And this is very important, that the Garden of Eden is a special location of God's presence. All right, now, the biggest one, what did God tell them to do? Whereas the first thing, there's what God told them not to do. That's important. We all know what they were told not to do, right? Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. 
But their job was not simply to sit there and to just hang out and not eat from a tree. They did actually have a job that they were supposed to do. Anybody catch it? What's that? Name the animals? Oh, you're actually ahead of me. The first, so, yeah, they were supposed to tend the garden, first of all. And then also, there's this thing about naming the animals, which we have to understand, naming the animals is a... This helps us understand what's, enti- what's entailed with uh, tending the garden, because naming the animals is not just making up sounds to refer to animals, right? In the ancient world, when you name something, especially if you're the first to name something, you're giving it a purpose. So when Adam is naming the animals, he's not just saying, oh, I'm going to call that a cow and I'm going to call that a horse. He's deciding, cow, a horse, I'm going to ride you. Cow, I'm going to eat you. And never the other way around. Right? Like, it'd be weird to do it the other way around. So that's the kind of thing he's deciding. He's actually exercising authority over the animals because they're meant to rule over creation. And so, and, and that, it uses the phrase wild animals. I think that's important. Keep that in your mind because that's going to come up as we read the next part of the story. But the point is when you've established these coordinates, you recognize that Adam and Eve were made to live in the garden. The garden is where they experience the presence of God. And their job is to not eat from the tree and to rule over creation, which especially involves ruling over the wild animals. Then you will pick up on some of the things that are happening in Genesis 3 that we often miss. Because I would argue... The Genesis 2 and 3 are perhaps the most misinterpreted chapters, narrative chapters in the Bible. And there are a lot of notions that we get mixed up in Genesis 2 and 3 that aren't actually there. And if you read it in terms of uh, the, the plan, you keep these things in mind, it'll help you see a bit more clearly what's going on. So, now that we've got those coordinates set, I'm going to read you chapter 3. Uh, well, I'm going to read you the first part of chapter 3. And... Um, we, so, and the, the next question is, now that we know what the human beings were supposed to do, what did they actually do? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? You, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. All right. So, that's the encounter between Adam and Eve and the serpent. And one of the things that I try to do when I'm reading stories, especially when I'm preaching through stories, is to try and avoid anything that we have added into the text. I want to see what the Bible itself actually says. And one of the things we need to avoid in order to really understand what's going on in this story is the common misconception we have about the serpent. Usually, when we start talking about the snake in the Garden of Eden, we are now all thinking about Satan, right? Where was Satan mentioned in the passage we just read? Nowhere. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Satan is the snake or that the snake works for Satan. 
Um, there may be a couple passages you're thinking of. If you'd like to talk those through with me, I don't have time now, but I'd love to get coffee and talk about those with you. But the Bible never actually says that the snake is Satan. In fact, that's important because the actual identity of the snake is really important. He is a snake. He's a wild animal, is specifically what it says. He is the craftiest of the wild animals. And if you remember, I told you to keep in mind the phrase wild animal. Because if you're reading this with a mind towards the plan, with a mind towards the mission that God gave to human beings, then when it says, hey, there was this snake who was the craftiest of the wild animals, you remember, oh yeah, human beings have a job with the wild animals, don't they? Like that was part of the, the purpose that they were given, is to rule over the animals. Right? And so now you should be thinking, okay, I know what Adam and Eve are supposed to do when they encounter animals. When they encounter wild animals or when they encounter creation, I know what their role is, right? They are meant to be God's representatives. They are meant to be the ones ruling over creation in God's name. They make sure that creation is ordered in a godly way, right? So one of the things that we get mixed up when we, when we insert Satan into this story is that we think that the conversation between Eve and the snake is a conversation between a human being and a spiritual being who knows more about God than she does. But that's not actually the conversation that's happening. What's happening is it's a conversation between Eve and a, and a snake, a wild animal, who knows less about God than she does. In fact, she has been appointed to be the intermediary between creation and God. Her job is actually to clarify God's will, make sure that the animals do God's will. So she has a specific task in mind, when, when, and you see her start to do it. She does okay the first, in the first line of question. The snake says, no, wait, did God really say you can't eat from any of these? And she, says, she corrects him, because that's her job. Because she is the one that has heard from God and knows what God's will is, and so she tells him, no, we can eat from any of them, just not that one. And at this point, she's doing fine. But then, the snake pushes a little bit more, because the snake is crafty. And he says, well, you won't certainly die, which basically is saying, there's a chance you might not die, but these other things will happen that uh, you'll be able, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil, which is true. Like, the snake never actually bald-faced lies. He's deceptive. But here's the thing. Why, why does Eve listen to the snake at all? Because Eve knows that she is, she and Adam are God's representatives on earth. They're the ones that God has delegated authority to. The snake isn't supposed to know more than her. He doesn't know better than her. And yet, the snake tells her something that she kind of wants to hear. And so all of a sudden, Eve starts to back away from her calling. She backs away from the job that she's been given. And so this is the first mistake that Adam and Eve make, is that they listen to the animal they are supposed to be teaching. Now normally, our supervision over animals doesn't, isn't so much teaching as it is just kind of ordering. And, but the snake can talk, so it's teaching in this case. Uh, why can the snake talk? We don't know, except that it was crafty. But the point is, it, it sets in context that Eve is supposed to be the one teaching the snake. She is the one who knows in this conversation because she's been told, and yet she somehow becomes willing to listen to a snake to tell her about, about what God is doing. And this seems absurd to us until we start thinking about how often we as Christians do the exact same thing. Right? Like we know... If you believe in Scripture and you believe in Jesus Christ, and you know the source of truth that we have. Like, I'm not up here because I have figured out, like, I'm the smartest person or I'm the... Like, I'm up here because I'm, I've been called to explain this to you. 
and to teach out of this. This is where the truth comes from, right? God is where the truth comes from. And so we know the actual source of truth is in God. And yet, how often are we willing to start listen to, listening to sources that wouldn't know any better than God? Somebody starts saying something that is kind of what we want to hear, and we're willing to start listening to them instead. I think we do this all the time. We are so easily seduced by perspectives. If you think about it rationally, there's no reason why that source of information, why that person or that movement would have any more access to truth than, than we do. And yet, when we hear what we want to hear, we'll get pulled that direction. And then what ends up happening when we start listening to the wrong sources of information, when we start getting seduced by these other perspectives telling us what we want to hear? Well, we basically, uh, we rebel against God. Now, one of the things that people will say when they read this story is, now, why does God get so angry about them just eating a piece of fruit? Like, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, they stole an apple. We don't know there was an apple, but that's usually what we think. Why would God get so angry? Why would he treat it as a big deal? But God is not the first one to treat this as a big deal. The first ones to treat this like a big deal are Adam and Eve, because they are completely changed. Their perspective is completely changed by the experience before God even steps in. They realize exactly what they've done when they decide to eat the fruit that God told them not to. And that's how their whole perspective changes, the way they see each other, the way they see themselves. They realize they've stepped out on their own away from God, and now the whole world is different. Now all of a sudden their innocence is gone. They're, they're vulnerable. They're exposed. They're concerned about what other people might do. And they start throwing around blame. Everything is different because they realize that they've rebelled against God. You can especially see this in the way the moment that Eve chooses to eat the fruit is described. It says that she saw the fruit and saw that it was good. At this point in the story, at this point in, in Genesis, who's the only one who has seen something and called it good? It's God. It's something that God does in Genesis 1 in creation. He is the one who decides something is good. Right? And he is the one who decided it would not be good for Adam and Eve to eat from this tree. And then all of a sudden, Eve has taken it upon herself to say, no, I've decided that's actually good. And what she is doing is she is taking the authority of God on herself. She is a delegated leader, and she has started to lead on her own behalf. And, and Adam goes right along with it. And so this eating of a piece of fruit is actually a rebellion. It is actually a decision to rule on, our own, on their own behalf, to take the authority God has given them and to use it for their own end. So that's the second thing that they decide to do, is they decided to rule on their own behalf. And if we aren't thinking in terms of God's design for the world, then yeah, this is just stealing a piece of fruit. But if we understand the design that God has for the world and the role that human beings have, we understand that this rebellion has the potential to completely upset the entire thing. That the whole plan doesn't work if God's delegated rulers are not obeying him kind of like if you own a restaurant and, and you don't actually work in the building, you have to be able to trust the manager, right? If the manager who runs it when you're not there can't be trusted, then the restaurant's not going to go well. But you have to be on board with the middle management. You have to be on the same team. So this is a big deal. And if you read it in the context of the plan, all of a sudden, everything is in jeopardy. So the next question that we ask, once we've seen what human beings do, is we ask, what does God do? How does God respond to what the human beings have done? I'm going to read you the next part of chapter 3. So, after, so God comes and finds them and interrogates them, 
and does all the questioning, and then this is how he responds once they've all admitted what's happened. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, this is the passage that we often call the curses, because it's what we, the way we interpret it is that God speaks to the snake and to Eve and to Adam and curses them and like, reaches down and changes something about them as a punishment. So I remember watching a cartoon when I was a kid where the snake started out looking like a Chinese dragon with legs, and then when God cursed it, it lost the legs because now it has to crawl on its belly. And then the idea is like childbearing didn't hurt before, but God punished all women because of what Eve did by turning up the pain level on, on women. And then God curses Adam, uh, either, and this part is not quite as clear, either to make it harder for him to grow things or to make him mortal. Um, but he cha- reaches down and changes something to punish them. And the truth is that none of that happened in what we just read. That's not actually what God did. And what God actually did is very, very limited. So first of all, to say that God says, you know, God says you're going to the snake, you're going to crawl on your belly, and you're going to eat dust. So if we're saying that God literally took off their legs so they had to crawl on their belly, then we should expect snakes to eat dust. But that's not what that language means. We actually find that language in other ancient cultures. There's a common way of talking about snakes. And because it's not about being on your belly as opposed to having legs. It's about being on your belly as opposed to being up and looking around and being casual, I guess, being in some kind of in a, a position of like, confidence. A snake being on its belly means it's a snake on the run. Eating dirt means that it, it's, in, it's on the run. Because what's happened is the snake has pushed against this authority structure that God has where human beings are in charge. And, and when human beings disobey, they have fractured the whole relationship. And so now human beings and, and animals are not on good terms anymore. And that's not going to work out well for the snake. Right? The snake is going to be on the run. The snake is going to be hiding in holes. The snake is going to be eating dirt. It's going to be like, it, this is bad for that creature. And it's not so much that God is cursing the animal. It's that this is what happens when you destroy the design that God had for how human beings and, and animals were supposed to interact. And then he speaks to the woman, and it says, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. Except that you've got to translate a couple of those differently. First of all, the childbearing, it should be pregnancy. It's not, it's not just giving birth. It's actually the whole process of, of bringing a child into the world. And pain is not physical pain. It's mental pain. It's anxiety and, and worry and anguish. And it's, it's, a, it's a word for the mental process. What he's saying is, it's going to be a much more painful process to bring a human being into the world. You're going to be more anxious. It's, you're going to be more scared. And, and you can th- think about it. The difference between bringing a child into the world in the garden and outside the garden. You bring a child into the world in the garden, you don't have to worry, is mom going to survive? You don't have to worry, is the baby going to survive? You don't have to worry, what's going to happen to the baby in the rest of its life? Is it maybe going to get murdered by its brother? Like, you don't have to worry about those kind of things. And all of a sudden, when the world is broken, 
How many of you, I mean, I have two kids under three, and I'm just now learning the immense burden that I now carry for worrying about what's going to happen to my kids. Like, the things I worry about, the list went way up, and the amount of time, the amount of future that I'm worried about, it's not just how long I'm going to live, but what's the world going to be like for my kids, right? That's, that's what he's talking about, is that the process of childbearing is going to be so much more anxious, so much worse, because you're bringing children into a broken world. Not only that, but as a woman, you're dependent on your husband to even start the process, and that brings up an opportunity for your husband to exploit. Your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. You're in, in unhealthy relationships, you're going to need him more than he feels like he needs you. Like There's a power imbalance now in a relationship. All of this is breaking apart because of what the human beings have done. Then, when God speaks to Adam, he says, cursed is the ground. You'll notice the word cursed is used twice in this passage, never to refer to a human being. The snake is cursed and the ground is cursed because of Adam. Because now Adam is being sent out of the garden, out of the place where God provided for everything. And now he's going to have to go out and make the world, make the ground produce for him what he needs. It's the equivalent for the provider for a family of what happens to the woman. Like now, you're not going to be able to just walk around the garden and pick whatever you want to eat. And you're not going to have this natural grocery section that grows because God made it to grow. You're going to have to go out and work really hard. Farmers... Uh, you know, no. I've, I've known enough farmers to know just how hard the work is to make the ground do what you want it to do, right? And that's what he's talking about. That is a result of the fact that this relationship has been broken and the human beings have been sent out of creation. So essentially what's actually happening is that God is he's honoring their choices by giving them the consequences of their actions. He's, he's delegated them authority, and that means that what they do, they actually get the consequences of what they do. And so God is, he's not saying, oh, you know what, never mind, I don't want you to rule on my behalf. Um, we're going to undo that one. But he actually honors their decisions. It would be like, not that you should do this, but imagine your 16-year-old kid says, you know what, I'm tired of living under your rules, I want to move out. And you sit them down and you say, okay, here's what it's going to look like. You're going to have to pay your own rent. You know, you're going to have to buy your own groceries. You're going to have to pay for your own car, your own insurance, your own gas. You're going to have to work really hard. You're not going to have time with your friends. You're going to like it. You're going to have to live in this broken world just like the rest of us. That's the conversation that God is having. Here are the consequences of what you're doing. This is what you have chosen. So He honors their decision by giving them exactly what they asked for. But God does actually make one change. He does do one thing, and it's very important, especially when we understand the different parts of the plan and how important these four parts fit together. Here's what he says. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to, to the tree of life. Now, when we recognize that God's plan is to make a place full of people filling up, fulfilling their purpose in his presence, then we recognize what's at stake when human beings are exiled from the garden. The garden is their home. The garden is also the place where they experience the presence of God. And finally, and this is one that we often miss, the garden is their source of eternal life. One of the misconceptions that we have is that God made Adam and Eve immortal and then reached down and changed something in them so they became mortal. That's not what the story says. 
The story says they lived in the garden with the antidote to death. And when God exiles them from the garden, they no longer have access to the, to the tree of life. That's how, de- that's how they now experience death, is they've lost access to the tree of life. So when God exiles them from the garden, this is a huge deal. This is absolutely huge. And it's the, the, what essentially God is doing is God contained their rebellion by exiling them from the garden. Because here's the thing. He says, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to let you have the consequences of your decision. But I'm not going to leave broken human beings live for, living forever in the center of my creation, corrupting everything. So, first, he limits their rebellion by limiting their lifespan. That's why he says, we can't let them, now that they have knowledge of good and evil, we can't let them reach out to the tree and live forever. This needs to be limited. And so he limits their lifespan. He also limits their access to God. They no longer get to just live in the garden, in, the, in his very presence, at the center of all of God's creation. What he's doing there is he's saying, I'm not going to destroy you, and I'm, I'm going to let you have the decisions you made, but I'm not going to let you destroy everything else. I'm going to limit the consequences of your rebellion. Because God still has a plan for humanity. And so he limits what they can do. He limits the impact of their rebellion so that he can still work with them because the rest of the story of the Bible is the story of God working to reestablish this plan where God's people live in the place he has made for them and they fulfill their purpose and they live in his presence. The goal is to get back to that and God has not given up on it. And so he limits our ability to corrupt the world around us for the sake of the continuing plan that he has. And there's one other thing that God does. It's a little detail, but it's interesting. Um, in the middle of all that, it says, God, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And some people will see in that something about um, atonement or sacrifice, something like that. It doesn't tell us any of that, but what it tells us is, before God sent them out, God gave them better clothes than he knew they would need. He provided for them as they were going out into exile because this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning of the story of God undoing what they've done. So God has grace for them in that, in that first moment and he provides them. You're going to have to go out, but you're not going out without a coat. He's going to take care of them. Now we read these stories. The reason we read these stories is not just because they're scripture, but also because we recognize that the plan is, the story of the Bible is my story too. That means I am a person who is made by God to live in a place and to fulfill the purpose He has given me. And I sometimes fail to live out my purpose. I often fail to live out my purpose. And God responds to that in similar ways. And so when we look at the Bible, we see these patterns of how, in what ways do people fail and how does God respond to that and how can that inform the way I live as a part of God's plan. So here's the moral of the story. There's two parts. And it's all about what it means to rule on God's behalf. Genesis 1 says that God made us to rule over creation. And if we're really ruling, then ruling on God's behalf means that our actions have real consequences for God's creation. When we talk about why is the world the way it is, why is the world broken, why, why are all these people hurt by this and that, the main answer is usually us. That's our contribution to the world. That's what we have done. God gave us the ability to shape this world for the better, and we have used it in, in so many ways to make it worse. And that's because God has really given us uh, actual delegated authority. 
we have the ability to receive what we want and get the consequences of what we do. So you can do good things that bless others, that build God's kingdom, and you can do bad things that hurt people. You can have real consequences for others around you. And when we get together and do things collectively, we have even more power to bless or hurt more people. So to be God's delegated authorities means what we do really matters. And that is, a, is a, something we have to come to terms with. And I'm not sure we're always happy that we have that ability. But it's what we're called to be. We're called to be God's delegated rulers who shape the world on His behalf. And that second part is really important. We aren't just given the, the authority to rule over God's creation. But specifically, we have to rule on God's behalf. And ruling on God's behalf means that we can't have the benefits of the plan without obeying God. So often what we want is we want God to let us be in the place, in His presence, without fulfilling our purpose. We think, well, God's just going to let all of us into eternity, and, and regardless of what we've done, and a merciful God would do that. But here's the problem, is that we, are, we have dedicated ourselves to undoing God's good creation. So it's kind of like saying, you know, you're going to go out in the ocean on a sailboat and you really should bring termites. And no, no, they are dedicated to destroying the boat that you're on, right? That's not a good... And, and we want to be able to be a part of God's good creation while we are actively doing what we, best we can to destroy it. And if God says that His good creation is going to endure, then that means that what's broken in us cannot endure. And so ruling on God's behalf means that we have to actually be a part of His thing. We have to be obeying Him if we're going to enjoy the benefits of it. And that's why God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. Because to put Adam and Eve, to leave Adam and Eve broken and, and sinful and in rebellion in the garden would be to allow sin and rebellion to win, to, to defeat God's good creation. And so for us, what that means is if we want to be part of God's good creation, then we need to be people who obey God. Now that's a challenge. And the rest of the Old Testament is going to really underline what kind of challenge that is, to obey God. And one of the challenges that I find with preaching through the entire storyline of the Bible is that uh, we are right now as far from Jesus chronologically as we can get, right? And so, uh, but I don't want to wait until, like, the spring to talk to you about Jesus. So we're going to end with a spoiler, okay? I've got to give you a spoiler because you've got to know where this is going. Because if the story ends here, then we're without hope because I'm not better than Adam and Eve at following Jesus. I do the same kind of things they do. But throughout the New Testament, we find this, this reminder. This is in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. What we find in the New Testament is this amazing news that there is a difference between Adam and Eve and us. There is an opportunity that we have that Adam and Eve didn't have, which is that we have access to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, he can actually transform us and change us. He can fill us with his Holy Spirit and make us into people who can and do obey him who live for righteousness, who fulfill our part of the plan. It isn't an overnight thing, and it's not a process that will necessarily get completed this side of glory. But we can be changed by Jesus Christ, and we can be the people that we're called to be. So the death of Jesus frees us from sin, 
so that we can fulfill our role in the plan. I can tell you that for a very long time as a Christian, I was really frustrated because I'd been told that I said the prayer I needed to get into heaven, but I wasn't feeling transformed, and I was told that that wasn't really that important. As long as I had my fire insurance, I was good. But I I didn't have any hope that I was being transformed, and so it was one of those feelings, I mean, this is a bit exaggerating, but I was a teenager at the time, so I exaggerated. I'd say, hey, at least you're going to get into heaven. I'd say, but it kind of feels like I'm in hell right now, and I don't like who I am. I don't like what I do. I don't like the kind of person I am, and that's what I want saving from. And Jesus Christ does save us from that. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be transformed into people who make the right choices, who do build God's kingdom, who use the power that's been delegated to us to transform the world to be His kingdom. And that's what we're made for. There is immense hope in that. And so as we close, I'm going to encourage you to consider taking the next step as this, in making this your story. I don't know where you are at in, in making the story of the Bible your story, so I don't know which of these steps is for you, but the first step is to give your life to Jesus. If you have not given your life to Jesus, if you have not committed to walking this path to being part of His kingdom, today is the best day to make that decision. To give your life to Him, to submit to Him, and to ask Him to change you to be the kind of person that you were made to be. If that's a decision that you want to make today, we encourage you to come forward during the final song, to grab one of our staff members after the service. If you're online, you can contact the church office or email us, text us, any way you want to get a hold of us, or talk to a Christian that you trust, and we'd love to, to walk you through that decision. If you're looking for a body of believers to join with and to walk this path together, uh, we encourage you to consider one of our Connect classes. Every month, the first Sunday of the month, we have a class after church. Uh, it's from, from 12.30 to 2.00, where we tell you who we are as a church, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And our next one is on October 5th. If you'd like to attend that class, you can just take your connection card and check the Connect class box on the back and join us for that. We also encourage you to join one of our small groups, and you can do the same thing on your Connect card. Check that box. Our small groups are groups that get together and share this journey of life together. They, they study the sermons, and they, they pray together and share life and help each other walk this path because we're not called to do this alone. And so small groups equip us for that. And finally, you can join a service team, and these are the different way, opportunities that we have for you to get to work building the kingdom by serving others. So if you'd like to join any one of those groups or teams, you can check that box in your connection card as well. I invite you to consider taking one of those next steps as we stand and sing our final song.